they sound like maybe they should be in the Bible. Sometimes we believe they really are in the Bible, but the truth is they're not in there. And like most of the sayings that we've looked at so far this summer, these, these exact words, when God closes one door, he opens another, those words are not found in the Bible anywhere. But of everything that we've talked about and looked at, it probably is the closest to biblical truth that there is. Doors of opportunity open and close before us in this life. Is God opening those doors? Is God closing those doors? I, I've not been able to pinpoint the exact source of, of this saying, but it sounds like a quote from the journal of Alexander Graham Bell, yeah, the one that invented the telephone, where he wrote, when one door closes, another opens. But so often we look so long and so regretfully upon the closed door that we do not see the one which has opened for us. There is a great biblical example of opening closed doors. It's found in Acts chapter 16. Now, you certainly can look that up in your Bible if you brought one with you today. The scriptures that we will look at today are all in the message notes folder that's in your bulletin. And of course, they'll be up on the screen as we go along so that you can see the word for yourself as we go. I want to read from Acts 16 verses 6 through 12. Paul and, and his ministry companions, who include Luke, who is the author of what I'm about to read, uh, they're on a major missionary trip and they're running into some doors, some closed, some open. I'll pick up in verse 6. It says, Next, Paul and Silas traveled through the area of Phrygia and Galatia because the Holy Spirit had prevented them from preaching the word in the province of Asia at that time. Then coming to the borders of Mysia, they headed north for the province of Bithynia. But again, the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go there. So instead, they went on through Mysia to the seaport of Troas. That night, Paul had a vision. A man from Macedonia in northern Greece was standing there, pleading with him, come over to Macedonia and help us. So we decided to leave for Macedonia at once, having concluded that God was calling us to preach the good news there. We boarded a boat at Troas and sailed straight across to the island of Sumatras. And the next day we landed at Neapolis. From there we reached Philippi, a major city of that district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. And we stayed there several days. Now, let's recap a little, get our heads around what's going on here. Paul is called to be the apostle to the Gentiles. In other words, he's, apostle just means one who is sent. He was sent to take the message, the gospel of Jesus Christ, to, to Gentiles, to people who were not Jews, who had no Jewish religious or faith background. And, and he's trying to obey. And so it must have been very confusing and very difficult for him in these times. Here he is on a mission for God that he knows he's been called to, and doors keep being shut in his face. But do you notice that Paul doesn't give up? Do you notice that Paul doesn't say, well, I tried, and then head on back home? He doesn't plop himself down and refuse to go any further. He keeps moving. And when he gets to Troas, Paul has a vision of a man standing in front of him saying, come to us in Macedonia and help us. And he understands that that is God's way of opening the door for him to go to Macedonia. Now that is modern day Greece. And listen to this now. 
This is the first time in human history that the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached on the continent of Europe. Raise your hand if you have some European connection in your background, your family history. That's just about all of us. Just about all of us originate somewhere. We're, we're, we're French or Italian or, or German or, or um, um, British or something in our background. We have some connection to the continent of Europe. This is the first time the gospel gets to Europe. We ought to be thrilled that Paul paid attention to the doors that God was closing and opening. So let's talk about those this morning. Let's talk about opened and closed doors. And along the way, let's learn some things about finding God's will. The first thing I want us to see, and, and if you're taking notes, these are in your, your message notes folder as well. And some of you um, regulars may have looked at that this morning and said, oh my, there's a lot of blanks to fill in. Um, just hang with me here. I promise you we'll get them all filled in before we go. And those of you who play that little game where in advance you try to decide what I'm going to say and you fill the blank in, be prepared to be wrong today. Um, <laughs> here's the first thing I want us to see. Here's number one. If we will trust him, God will guide us. If we will trust him, God will guide us. Because we weren't put on this earth to stumble around in the dark trying to figure out what we should do. Last week we talked about this. We talked about how the God of universes and galaxies and stars, and planets, and all created things. How that God is interested in you and me. He's interested in each one of us. And he has a, a plan for us. He has a pathway for us. That's what Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 have to say. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. Sounds simple, doesn't it? But so many people are confused about finding God's will. I told you a few minutes ago, it's the number one question that I hear in, in, in all my years of ministry. How can I know God's will for my life? What's God's will for my life? Let me tell you the basic problem with that question. It's the wrong question. Because when we ask, what is God's will for me? Or what is God's will for my life? The focus is on who? Me. The focus is on me. God, what's, you know, what's in this thing for me? What is your will for me? What direction is my life supposed to take? Let me tell you, let me frame for you the right question. What's God's will? Period. Question mark or however. That's the right question. What's God's will? See, God's already active in the world. God's doing something. Our job is to find out what he's doing and join up with him. Get involved in that with him. In Acts chapter 16, don't you know God is already at work? God's already at work in Macedonia. God's already preparing for the gospel to be taken to the ends of the known world. And Paul found closed door after closed door until he got in on God's plan. Until he went where it was, God wanted him to go. Why don't we stop asking God to show us his will for our lives and ask God, show us what you're doing and let us join you in that. And here's something else. Most of the time, 
God doesn't show us his whole plan at once. And boy, we don't like that. We would never say that. You know, we're going to smile and be pious and all that. But, uh, but we don't like it. We'd, God, we'd, I just don't appreciate it that, that you reveal your will in segments. When God first calls Paul to take the good news to the Gentiles, he does not say, now, okay, Paul, here's, uh, here's the next 20 years or so of your life. I'm going to send you to Philippi and then on to Athens and go to Corinth, and we're going to go through Lystra and Derby along the way, and eventually I'm going to send you over to Macedonia, and from there you're going to go up into Britannia, the whole known world basically in the next 20 years, Paul. How do you like those plans? That's not how it works. And God says go, and Paul went. Worked the same way for Abraham in the Old Testament. God didn't tell him at the very beginning, Abraham, if you go, I'm going to make you a great nation. In fact, we won't be able to number all of your descendants. And, and what's more, the Messiah, the Savior of the human race, is going to come out of your family tree and out of your family line. You know, Let's, let's just project the next uh, 4,000 years or so, Abraham. He doesn't do that. He says, Abraham, go. I want you to leave the land of your father and go. And Abraham went. We want the big picture, don't we? In fact, we think we're entitled to it. Let's just be honest. We think we deserve it. I mean, we think God ought to be saying, look, here's where I want you to go to school, and here are the classes that I want you to take, and, and this is who I want you to marry, and here's where I want you to live, and this is the job I want you to work at, and here's where I want you to retire, and here's where I want you to die, and here's where I want you to be buried. How's that? It doesn't work out that way. If you don't hear anything else I say, hear this. Following God isn't about a destination. It's about a journey. It's not about, boy, you know, I'm glad they enjoyed that in the first service because I told them second service won't appreciate that. It's not about a destination. It's about the journey. There's something else I want us to see is that while we're on this journey, this is number two, while we're on this journey, some doors will be closed, but we shouldn't get discouraged. Paul encountered two closed doors in a very short period of time. God wouldn't let him go to Asia. God wouldn't let him go to Bithynia. And it's easy for us to get frustrated when it seems like doors are constantly being closed. But did you know there's only one verse in the Bible that kind of, sort of says God closes doors. I mean, that uses that language. And it's found in Revelation chapter 3. And it's where Jesus is speaking to the churches in Asia. And one of those churches was at a, a city called Philadelphia. And he identifies himself by saying this. It's in Revelation 3, 7 and 8. This is the message from the one who is holy and true, the one who has the key of David, what he opens, no one can close, and what he closes, no one can open. I know all the things you do, and I have opened a door for you that no one can close. God shuts doors, but he's not the only one who shuts doors. And when we run into a closed door, our first question should be, did God close this door? And our second question should be, or was it something or someone else? Because you see, other people can close doors. Other people can close doors in my life. We're all free will beings with choices, right? And that kind of messes everything up down here, but that's the way it is. 
And so sometimes, even though it doesn't benefit us, and even though it's not the, the result or the outcome that we would want, other people can make decisions, uh, can behave, can do things that close doors for us. And sometimes our enemy, the devil, tries to close a door. <laughs> and listen, if we encounter Satan's resistance trying to close a door, we need to knock that door down. We need to knock it down. We can push through. We can bust through his resistance. You know what I wish we would stop doing? I wish we would stop making the devil the equal opposite of God. Like the devil is God's evil twin or something. That's not the case. It's not remotely the case. He is toothless and powerless. He has to pretend to be a lion to scare people. Arr! Because he has no power except what is given to him. And his power is limited and his power is temporary. And there's a mop-up operation coming that's going to put an end to him. Until, th thank you, Russ. And the other three that applauded. I appreciate you so much. The four, the four of us will go out to dinner. I promise you. If we discern that God has closed a door, we don't get discouraged. That means we just look a little longer, a little harder for the door that God has opened. When God said no to Paul, it was because he had something better in mind. <laughs> when God says no to you and me, it just may be that he has something better in mind. That he's got a greater work. Do you remember when your kids were little? How hard they took no. In fact, some of us, our kids took it so hard that we just stopped saying it to them. You can tell those kids from other kids now. Why did we say no? Because we, we had a bigger picture, didn't we? We knew, no, you, you can't eat a baby Ruth for breakfast. There's some reasons why, you know. But right now, all you need to know is, no, you can't eat that. Sometimes when God says no, oh, we got elbow nudging and finger pointing going on out here. I've, hit, <laughs> I've, I've, I've stirred up some trouble in some marriages already. Sometimes when God tells us no, it's because he's preparing something better, something greater. And the things that we think of as failures and problems can end up being blessings in disguise. That gave somebody hope right there. And that leads me to the next thing that I want us to see about these doors and about God's will. And that's that we stay active while we look for the open door. We stay active. When Paul encountered the closed door, like we said, he didn't just give up. He didn't just pout and complain. The, the worst thing he could have done would have been to throw up his hands and go, God, you know what? I give up. I'm just not going to do anything. No, he kept moving. This direction was closed to him. He went another direction. When that, he came to the end of that direction, God said, no, nope, you can't go any further. He went another direction. And as he was moving, God intervened and directed him to take the gospel into Europe. 
So when we find ourselves at a closed door, the worst thing we can do is fall in love with that closed door, fall in love with the idea of what life could have been like if we had been allowed to go through that door. It's the worst thing we can do. The best thing we can do is keep moving and let God direct our path. Do you, do you know that when a, a boat is sitting completely still in the water, the rudder is useless? The rudder can't turn the boat. It's called being dead in the water. No, for, for that boat, for the rudder to be able to work, that boat's got to have some motion, got to have some momentum, some forward motion. And when we're seeking God's direction, we don't sit still. If we do, we're dead in the water. But if we're actively serving God anywhere, any way we can, then it's easier for him to direct us to a different path. It's, he can use that motion, he can use that momentum to move us into the path he wants us to take. And that leads me to another thing I want us to see about doors and God's will. Number four, we can't depend on doors to help us find God's will. We can't depend on them. When I was a kid, everything in our house, except the groceries, pretty much, cleaning supplies, paper supplies, consumables, everything else in our house came from Sears. Now, you think I'm kidding. I'm not. Our TV came from Sears. Our stereo came from Sears. And it was very uh, elegantly packaged in one cabinet, contained in one cabinet. The stereo, the TV, everything in one beautiful wooden cabinet. TV screen was about this big. <laughs> our washer and dryer came from Sears. Our air conditioner came from Sears. Our dishes, our furniture, the tools in the toolbox, the shed in the backyard, the, the tires on the cars, they all came from Sears. The tough skin jeans that my brothers and I wore. Anybody, anybody ever wear a, a green or an orange pair of tough skin jeans? Let me see your hand for green. Oh, you know you. Hey, I'm the only one. I'm the only one. <laughs> you, couldn't, you could not destroy a pair of tough skin jeans. I mean, everything else would disintegrate except the knee, but that knee lasts forever. <laughs> we wore those tough skins and those shirts from the Winnie the Pooh collection. That'll get you beat up in 7th or 8th grade. <laughs> All of it came from Sears. Now, I know that some of you were Montgomery Ward's people, and hopefully God has forgiven you for that because you were wrong. You were, you were so, so wrong. Monkey Wards. And three times a year, a big, fat catalog came to our house in the mail. It was the fall and winter catalog. And it was the spring and summer catalog. They were about 2,000 pages each, and we looked at every page. And some of us boys looked at some of the pages a lot. Because <laughs> they sold everything in there. You know what I'm talking about. Don't act like you don't. But the king daddy of the catalogs came around the middle of October. It was the wish book the Christmas catalog. And I swear to you, when that catalog arrived, it was glowing. <laughs> when the mailman brought it down the street, you could hear angels singing, oh, 
because that was it. Everything you could ever want was in that catalog. It was the high water mark of the kid year. In those days, Sears had a sales strategy that involved three levels of quality for the same product. They had the basic level, like your basic lawnmower, the good quality. Or you could order one that had a little more horsepower, had a few more features. That was the better quality. And then they had what they called the Sears Best. And it was the one with all the bells and whistles. And it was the most expensive. And when you had Sears Best, whether it was a bicycle or a tire or an air conditioner or a lawnmower, you knew you had the best that money could buy. When it comes to finding God's will, there's a good way, there's a better way, and there's a best way. Let's look real quickly in the time we have left at three sources for finding God's will. There's a good way, and that's through circumstances. That's through the things that are going on around us. Circumstances can function for us as an external guide. Sometimes you'll hear it called God's providence or providential guidance. There there are times when we can determine God's will by looking at what's going on around us, looking at circumstances and letting circumstances reveal open and closed doors for us. But but there's a key to this. There's a little bit of a catch. You see, God made a promise in Psalm 32, verses 8 and 9. He said, the Lord says, I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. I will advise you and watch over you. And the King James Version right there says, I will guide thee with mine eye. I will guide you with my eye. Verse 9, do not be like a senseless horse or a mule that needs a bit and a bridle to keep it under control. The key is to have such an intimate walk with the Lord that he can guide us with his eye. Now, parents, you know what that's like. When my kids were little, if they misbehaved in a public place, all I had to do was give them the look. The look that said, I'm about to kill you. (laughs) No, not really. The Lord gave us six. We still have all six. But they knew what it meant. They knew that it meant knock it off. Settle down. You're going to get it when we get to the van or when we get home. Or when we get somewhere where CPS can't see us. (laughs) And you know what the amazing thing is? It worked. It worked most of the time. If they didn't suddenly develop, you know, like temporary sudden blindness, it worked. It's like 60% of the time it worked 100% of the time. I don't know exactly how that works. But let me tell you what it never worked with. How, where it never worked. It never worked with OPKs. Other people's kids, right? You know other people's kids. They're the ones you don't like near as much as you like your kids, right? I mean, that's, let's just be honest. Am I the only one who wants to be honest here today? Come on. If there's a kid standing here and he doesn't have my last name, chances are I don't like him. OPK. Why didn't it work on other people's kids? No relationship, right? No understanding. 
no expectations. Now, their parents come on the scene, give the look, their version of the look, their kids understand. Why? Because it depended on relationship and intimacy and knowledge. Right? If God's going to guide us through circumstances, we've got to be tight with Him. We've got to be close to Him so that He can guide us with His eye. And there's a better way to find God's will. It's through the Holy Spirit. Back in Acts 16, Luke says first, he says, the Holy Spirit prevented us from preaching in Asia. Then right after that, he says, the Spirit of Jesus did not allow us to go to Bithynia. He's talking about the same person. Because the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus, is the Spirit of God. Jesus is God, right? The Holy Spirit is God. Jesus is the Holy Spirit. In John 14, Jesus promised that he would send the Holy Spirit to be our helper. And then in John 14, 17, Jesus told his disciples this. He said, he is the Holy Spirit. This one who is coming is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But you know him because he lives with you now. Hey, guys, it's me. And later will be in you. We need to learn how to listen for that still, small voice of the Holy Spirit. Because if we're seeking God's guidance, He will speak to us. In Isaiah chapter 30, verse 21, God says this, Your own ears will hear Him. Right behind you, a voice will say, This is the way you should go, whether to the right or to the left. When I've heard God speaking to my heart, it has not typically been in an audible voice. I don't know about you and your experience. Some people have audible voice encounters with the Holy Spirit. I just, that's not where I'm at. Most of the time, the problem is that God is speaking. We just aren't listening. It leaves the transmitter fine. The transmitter is a 100,000 watt blowtorch. It's working full strength. But the receiver is like this broke down little portable transistor radio with a coat hanger for an antenna and some aluminum foil wrapped around it. We just haven't kept the receiver in very good condition. In Bible times, the shepherds, in an area, a community would bring all of the sheep together at night and put them in a common sheepfold. It was, it was easier, it was more secure, easier to take care of them. And they would be kept together overnight. And in the morning, each shepherd would go into the sheepfold and he would call out. And only the sheep that belonged to his flock would follow him because they recognized his voice. If we belong to Jesus, we can learn to recognize his voice. Don't, don't you have people who call you and they don't even have to identify themselves on the phone? You know who they are. As soon as you hear their voice. Jesus said, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. And now let me share with you what I think is the best way for identifying the will of God for our life. 
It's the best way because I think it's the most sure way. The external guidance of circumstances is good. The internal guidance of Holy Spirit is better, but there's a third way, the best way, God's Word. God's permanent, eternal Word. God's eternal guidance is found in His Word. Now, we've got to do it right. We can't do like the guy that just decided he was going to let his Bible fall open and whatever he read, that's what he was going to do. So he just let it fall open and he put his finger on the verse and he read it and it said, and Judas went out and hanged himself. <laughs> well, that can't be right. Let's, you know, let's try this again. So he kind of flipped it back and forth you know, and let it fall open again. And he put his finger on a verse and it said, go thou and do likewise. <laughs> well, okay, God. Let's give you a third chance here. So he flipped again. You know, he kind of shook everything out of his Bible except the pages. And, and then he let it fall open again and put his finger on a verse. And it said, what thou do, do quickly. <laughs> well, that's the wrong way to do it. But listen, what, what we're calling for here is consistent study of God's word. God's word always brings clear direction. Psalm 119 verse 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. I don't know about you, but you know how God's word works for me? A lot of times it teaches me what the wrong way is so I can avoid that. It, it, it helps me learn from somebody else's bad example in the scripture. Whoo, that didn't work out too good for David. I'm going to make sure I'm not going to go there. But God's Word teaches us how to live, what not to do. When we develop the habit of studying God's Word, we will find that phrases and, and even verses, even whole passages, maybe not word for word, but the sense of a passage, will get in here and we'll find ourselves in a situation where we need that and it'll come right back to here. And we'll be able to apply it, put it to use in our current life situation. There's a harbor in Italy. And it can only be reached by sailing through a narrow channel filled with dangerous rocks. And down through the years, in fact, down through the centuries, many, many ships have been wrecked when they tried to enter that harbor at night. Several years ago, still before the days of radar and Loran and GPS, some engineers came up with a solution and in the harbor, they built three lights on tall poles, one in the harbor and two on the shore. And they set it up so that an approaching ship, if it would line those three lights up and keep those three lights lined up as they move forward, they would be able to move safely past the rocks, past the danger, into the safe harbor. But if only two of the lights lined up, the captain would know he was off course and needed to correct. God has given us three lights. When we line up our circumstances and the voice, the testimony of the Holy Spirit and God's eternal word, we know we can proceed safely. Let me give you a personal example. 33 years ago this month, I left my home in North Alabama and I went west just to Mississippi. I mean, it wasn't far. But I went to Bible college there to fulfill the desire I'd had since I was nine years old to be a preacher. 
I lasted two months. Seven weeks, actually. A lot of reasons why. There was just there was turmoil in my home. My parents were separated and then divorced, and, and that was pretty ugly. I had two younger brothers still in the home. I was worried about them. I had a girl I dated for a long time who chose that uh, time to break up with me. And the, the bottom line, though, is that I was, I was miserable. I was homesick. And one night I thought, you know what, I'm just going to pack my things and, and leave, and that's what I did. And I went back home, and the next semester I enrolled in a local college and began taking some classes. And as the semester went on, I decided I didn't want to be a preacher anymore. I, I thought I might like to be an accountant. Now, <clears throat> if you have ever seen my desk, you know that I should not be an accountant. I stayed active in church, even though I wasn't exactly um, living for the Lord, let's say. I was living for me. I was going to do what I wanted to do for a change. In the summer of 1982, a couple years later, I, I was working at the senior high week of church camp. In fact, I had worked all the weeks of camp that year, and there was a team there from a Christian college uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, and I got to be friends with a couple of the people on the team. And, and uh, we all stayed up late at night after the campers went to bed and just talked. And one night we were talking about our lives and our future plans and what, what we had in mind. And I just happened to let it slip that at one time I had gone to Bible college and that I had thought I might want to be a preacher and kind of laughed about it. And one of the guys, he was an older guy, uh, he was already married, had kids. He said, you know, I, I could see you as a preacher. Maybe you ought to go back. Late that night, I, I lay on my bunk and I thought about what he'd said. And as clearly as you can hear me speaking right now, I heard the Holy Spirit say this to me. He's right. You should go back. Well, I pushed that idea right out of my mind. I had already paid a deposit for my uh, fall semester at the college I was enrolled in, so I, I wasn't, didn't want to hear about anything else. And then a couple days later, I was helping my team. Each of the adult leaders had a, a team of, of teenagers that you were in charge of. And I was helping them learn a memory verse for that day. We were in the 11th chapter of the book of Romans. And I had my Bible there, and it was open. And there was one verse on those, you know, those two pages, if your Bible's open. There was one verse on those two pages that was highlighted. The only verse. It was Romans eleven twenty nine, which says... God's gift and his call can never be withdrawn. In the translation I was using at the time, it said God's gifting and his calling are irrevocable. And I want you to know something. I read that. And right there, right then, I knew. I knew I'd be going back to Bible college. I knew I would be a, a, a pastor. Going west hadn't worked out, so this time I went east to Atlanta Christian College. And on my very first day there, I met this cute little 17-year-old girl. Her name was Vicki Bryant. She's sitting right back there. By December of that year, we were going together. <laughs> and the rest, as they say, is history. Here we are all those years later, six boys, six men, beautiful boys. 
Was it easy to go through that door? No, it was not. It, I was still uneasy about leaving home. I, I still was worried about my brothers who were there. There were some obstacles that, that got in the way of going to school, but today I'm convinced that it was God's will. I lined up the three lights of circumstances, the voice of God's Holy Spirit, and the testimony of His eternal Word. And I know that it was His direction of how I needed to go. There's a door that Scripture says God can't open. It's in Revelation chapter 3. It's the door to the human heart. Revelation 3.20 says, Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. A painter named Holman Hunt has a very famous painting called The Light of the World and it shows Jesus standing at the door knocking. And art critics who were Holman's contemporaries pointed out that he had made a mistake, a crucial mistake. They pointed out that there is no doorknob on that door. Holman Hunt corrected them by explaining that 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 was the door to a person's heart and that the only doorknob was on the inside. You see, we have to open the door of our heart. Jesus won't force his way in. He stands, he knocks, he waits. He wants to enter. He stands, he knocks, he waits. But will we open that door? Bow your heads, please. Close your eyes.